Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. Profile plasty. Don't you like the sound of that? The possibility of modifying something that many people are unhappy with in their own appearance. But of course, we typically can't see our own profile, except in a picture. So really, when we have concern about our profile, we are scrutinizing what others see when they view us. Right or wrong, we worry about the visual impression we make on others, whether for a job, a potential relationship, or other social interactions. And as more and more pictures of us crop up on social media, and as we increase our day-to-day interactions, we want to put our best face, or profile, forward. So what could be involved when we talk about profileplasty? Improving nose contour might be an obvious component, but what else? And what do any of these options truly entail, whether minimally invasive or surgical? In this episode, we are fortunate to get some excellent answers to these questions as we talk with Dr. Jamil Ahmad, an already accomplished expert on the subject of profileplasty, rhinoplasty, and much more. Let's listen in. Well, I am so pleased today to present Dr. Jamil Ahmad for our discussion. He did his plastic surgery residency at University of Texas Southwestern at Dallas and currently practices in Toronto at the Plastic Surgery Clinic. He's on numerous national plastic surgery boards, co-authored three textbooks on rhinoplasty, and has just recently co-chaired the important Dallas rhinoplasty meeting. Phew! So many accomplishments already, even though much of your career is still ahead of you. Your legacy is in the making. Uh, Well, Plastic Surgery Decoded listeners are eager to benefit from the insights you bring to our discussion today, so let's not delay any further. And to start, would you please tell us about your practice? What type of patients or cases do you focus on primarily? Well, uh, before starting, Regina, I just want to thank you for inviting me to be a guest on your podcast. It's really a great privilege, and I think you provide a lot of great useful information to people who are considering plastic surgery. It's so hard to get real information that's going to be accurate and also reflective of the process so that our patients can have realistic expectations and then they'll be able to decide appropriately and then be happy with the outcome so it's really great that that you do this for people Um, well thank you for saying that great and you know so in my practice so i'm about a hundred percent uh, cosmetic surgery practice and we're one at the plastic surgery clinic I have two partners Dr. Frank Liston and Dr. Ryan Austin and we're one of the busiest uh, cosmetic surgery practices in Canada um, 
we have a pretty mixed practice. So a lot of plastic surgery practices are very heavy in breast and body contouring surgery. Body contouring referring to liposuction, tummy tucks. Now we're having the fat injection to the buttocks and arm lifts, thigh lifts. Um, but we also do a fair amount of facial surgery and rhinoplasty. So I do a lot of rhinoplasty in our practice. Um, but I still, I'm about 11 years into my practice now, I still really love the breadth of what we do. And it's nice to be able to offer patients uh, rhinoplasty, but also to be able to do breast and body contouring because oftentimes our patients have several things that might concern them. Yeah, that's really nice. You are the full service. That's wonderful. Well, great. And today, you know, our topic is profileplasty, which is really just a convenient term that's useful to conceptually group together a bunch of procedures. Um, but in your opinion, what could this group include? What types of procedures primarily? You know, I think that one of the most common procedures in plastic surgery is rhinoplasty or, you know, as people would know, nose job. And that's certainly a central component to profile plasty. And when we talk about pro profile plasty, that's adjusting the side view, really, of, of the face. So the nose is central to that. But there's several other treatments um, that can also enhance the side view of the face, including chin augmentation, so that can be with implants. We're also using fillers or fat injection to help build up the chin. Um, we're doing more uh, lip augmentation, so lip shaping, and that also can be done in a variety of ways with fillers, fat, uh, sometimes implants. I think those are the key things we tend to think of, but if we really want to kind of get even more finesse than, you know, restoring volume to the high cheeks, you know, jawline contouring, uh, neck contouring, any of these procedures that are really going to enhance the profile of, of a person's face. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. So let's break that down a little bit. Um, but before we do, and I know it's different per procedure, but in your experience, what's the approximate breakdown of gender of patients who are interested in these procedures? And is there a more common age bracket for these procedures? Yeah, I think in, in cosmetic surgery in general, it's probably about 90% uh, women to 10% men. And then there's a bit of variation within procedures. Obviously, there are some procedures that are more gender specific. Uh, for example, breast augmentation, breast lifting, breast reduction uh, versus gynecomastia surgery, so male chest surgery. Uh, when we look specifically at some of the facial procedures, you know, rhinoplasty, as I said, is one of the most common procedures. Personally, in my practice, and, and again, I'm seeing patients for cosmetic concerns primarily, and then addressing the function or the breathing issue secondarily as part of the surgery. So in my practice, I think it's probably 90% women in rhinoplasty, 10% men. Um, and when we dive a little bit deeper into what men and women desire out of rhinoplasty surgery, personally, I see some trends in terms of what they're trying to achieve by surgery. So when we look at men specifically, in my practice, I see men who are coming in for a crooked nose, a dorsal hump or a bump on the bridge of their nose, uh, tip work. So sometimes the tip is really big or asymmetric or it's droopy. And then the other thing that usually accompanies a lot of those concerns is breathing issues. So deviated septum, 
uh, is one of the most common things that we're going to do at the same time as rhinoplasty. So that tends to be the men. They tend to be in my practice. Um, they, they come for specific things uh, and they want to look very natural, unoperated. Now, women, on the other hand, in my practice, also want to look very natural, unoperated. Um, but I think they tend to put a little bit more thought into the procedure in terms of being a bit more specific as to what bothers them and what they're hoping to improve. Um, so it's almost like looking at the nose with a higher degree of definition. Yes. There's more specificity. Whereas the men in my practice are like, you know, get it straight, get rid of the bump. Uh, I want to breathe better. And they're like, and, and then I'm make good. me look natural. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, right. Women tend to be a lot more precise in what they're hoping mm. to have. Um, and both are, are great to work with because when someone says to me, hey, I know what you do. I know what your style's like. You know, tell me what you're going to do and do what you think's right. On the other hand, I also like when patients come in and they can be very precise and specific about what bothers them because then that helps me to create the best plan, right? So mm -hmm. they're both two different approaches to it, but both really good types of patients to work with. Yeah, that's very interesting. And then how about ages? So I think... All over the board? Yeah, all over the board now... Um, it's important, I think, for people who are considering rhinoplasty, particularly younger people, to understand a few things. Number one is the facial skeleton matures at different ages on average between males and females. So uh, the female facial skeleton matures a little bit earlier, you know, maybe two years or earlier, uh, 14 to 16. The male facial skeleton matures a little bit later so kind of like 16 to 18 you don't want to have rhinoplasty while your facial skeleton is still changing significantly absolutely so typically when I see uh, young people for rhinoplasty number one is I, I typically don't do rhinoplasty um, before 16 years old for young women usually it's 17 closer to 18 mm -hmm. uh, and for men typically it's going to be 18 and onward now, the second key component for young people considering rhinoplasty is certainly one wants to uh, know what they want, know what they're getting into, and, and know both short and long term what the consequences are. And so it's so important for anyone considering cosmetic surgery, but particularly younger people, that they're mature enough to understand what they want and, and to make the appropriate decision. Um, you know, as you know, Regina, you know, when we're younger, we tend to uh, sometimes think about things a little bit quicker and make more mm -hmm. impulsive decisions. And, a little impetuous. Yeah. And, and usually it, with maturity, there's a little bit more thought. And, and that's always the best thing for cosmetic surgery. I think cosmetic surgery shouldn't be the type of thing where people wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to do this. Uh, mm -hmm. And then they just go do it. And for some people, it sounds good, but for a lot of what we do, I mean, it is still surgery and, and it's making long-term changes to the body and Absolutely. something that the patient has to look at and be happy with for their lifetime. So I think that's important. The maturity is a really important component for young people having rhinoplasty. That makes sense. That's a great um, analysis. Um, well, let's 
break down rhinoplasty a little further, you know, we know it's nose reshaping and there can be various forms for that. It can involve, involve the dorsum of the nose or the kind of the bridge, the, the top part of the nose, or it can involve the tip and those are all different um, procedures actually. But what do you think is new in rhinoplasty these days? Are there improvements in techniques that you are utilizing? Are there different um, materials or is, is there tendency for less invasive procedures. What are your thoughts about that as yeah, your practice has been shaping up? Yeah, so uh, I trained in Dallas, which is very well known for just fantastic uh, rhinoplasty training. Yes. I mean, a lot of uh, the pioneers in rhinoplasty practice in Dallas or came every year to participate in our Dallas rhinoplasty meeting. And that allowed a lot of exchange of ideas and dissemination of ideas. So I was very lucky to have that experience. Um, for the past 20 years, I think we've seen a paradigm shift in how we approach it, approach rhinoplasty. So prior to 2000, you know, you think of the typical 70s, 80s closed rhinoplasty. So no incision between the nostrils. And they were called reductive rhinoplasties because Typically, it was about making things on the nose smaller, getting rid of the bump, making the tip smaller, reducing the overall size of the nose. And that was done largely by reducing the size of the underlying cartilage and bone. The issue with it is that the cartilage and bo bones are the supporting structure, the framework of the nose. And if the framework is weakened too much, it continues to change over time. And what we would see is 10, 20, 30 years down the road, the nose would start to buckle and pinch and collapse in areas because there wasn't a strong frame. About 20, 25 years ago, we start to see this evolution to structural rhinoplasty and part of that accompanied open. So where we make the small incision on the columella, so between the nostrils and we lift the skin fat muscle layer off the cartilage and we can look directly at the cartilage and then evaluate what needs to be adjusted. And in making those adjustments, oftentimes instead of cutting out cartilage, we may fold it on itself so that it, it reduces in size, but it doubles in strength. And in other areas that are, are weak, we may take cartilage from inside the nose, typically the septum where the patient doesn't need it and where it's crooked, recarve it into small slivers and add those to weaker areas of, of the nose to create structural support in the form of grafts. And so I think we saw that, that shift over the past 20, 25 years. Mm -hmm. Now more recently, we've seen several other things that I think people may see uh, or hear of on social media. So there's this approach called preservation rhinoplasty. Mm -hmm. And to avoid all of the technical differences, Essentially, it's also on the same premise to not cut out things to try to preserve structures and what it can refer to also is like the patient who has a bigger nose with a bump that instead of taking the bump down from where the bump is, it's almost like going lower and lowering the nose towards the face so that you're actually not taking the hump directly down. So that was where preservation rhinoplasty started. Reducing it from underneath, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like if you have a two-story house and you like the upper story, you basically preserve the upper story, take the, the lower story out and drop the yeah, upper story yeah. to, to make it the ground level. So that's, in general, the concept of preservation. So I think people will hear more about it that are researching uh, rhinoplasty. 
And then I think some of the other innovations are uh, what will be called on social media liquid rhinoplasty. Mm -hmm. So taking a filler, usually a hyaluronic acid filler, and injecting it into the nose to change the shape of the nose. To recontour. And that is a bit more specific because when we think of the nose as essentially a series of hills and valleys. And liquid rhinoplasty can be used to fill the valley to bring it up, to level it up. But it's not a great solution if the hill is the problem. If the hill is the problem, you want to reduce that down. So I think that's an important thing for people who are considering non-surgical rhinoplasty to understand. Uh, sometimes if the hill is too big and you build the rest of the nose up, you get this disproportionately large nose that may start too mm -hmm. high you know, by the, by the eyebrows and, and it looks quite uh, peculiar. Mm -hmm. And what about in terms of how long results will last with a so-called liquid rhinoplasty? So with a liquid rhinoplasty, it depends on several factors, uh, the main one of which is what soft tissue filler we use. So the most commonly injected soft tissue filler in North America right now is a hyaluronic acid-based filler. And there's a variety of companies that make different hyaluronic acid fillers, and they're called you know, different commercial names, but hyaluronic acid is essentially like a, a sugar molecule that occurs normally within, within our bodies, within the skin, um, but it's made synthetically so that when it's injected, it's more compatible with our bodies. So having uh, reactions uh, where it doesn't take to our bodies less common, so allergic or in inflammatory reactions. And then also our body slowly breaks it down. Now, depending on how the hyaluronic acid is made on a microscopic level, it can break down faster or slower. So on average, most of the products that we'll use in the, the nose, and again, it's off-label, so it's not specifically approved by the FDA. It's approved for other areas of the face. But when we use it in the nose, most of the products will last 9, 12, or even longer. There's something about the nose relative to let's say something like the lips where we'll put the exact same product but it won't last as long probably because there's a lot of movement in the muscles in the lips whereas the nose tends to last quite a long time i'll have patients that i've injected uh, with the hyaluronic acid filler and they'll come back a year and a half after to have another treatment mm -hmm. that's great and then the uh, dorsal preserving technique we talked about earlier is also one of the advantages uh, not having to elevate or separate the soft tissue that overlies the nasal structure? Yeah, it's, you know, uh, preservation rhinoplasty initially, you know, about five years ago when it started to come back on the scene, it focused around uh, lowering the dorsal hump, the bump on the nose. Um, it's evolved quite a bit to have a lot of intricacy. You have to lift the skin from the framework but the layer that it's lifted up varies a little bit. It's, it's just a cell layer deeper than what surgeons like myself who do an open structural rhinoplasty typically will do. And then there are other specific maneuvers that are being incorporated from the standpoint of how the cartilages that make the tip of the nose are manipulated, how the crooked nose is treated. So there's a lot of very, very specific technical maneuvers that go into the preservation rhinoplasty approach. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, there's a lot of similarity between open structural and preservation rhinoplasty. Both are predicated on 
not just removing cartilage to make a nose smaller. It's really about being very thoughtful, very judicious about what's being removed and really focusing on providing structural support. You know, it's like if we built a house, right? You gotta have a good foundation, a good frame. The house is gonna last a long time. If it's on a bad foundation and a poor frame, it, it's not gonna do well over time. The nose is somewhat like that. That's a great analogy. Well, let's shift gears slightly and talk about general downtime for a rhinoplasty. And of course, obviously for a liquid rhinoplasty or a nose that's been reshaped with filler, et cetera, the downtime's gonna be very low. But uh, what about surgical treatment for nose reshaping? And does it depend uh, whether on whether you have done more work on the dorsum of the nose or included the tip of the nose? Yeah, I think there's, you know, an average time, you know, most of the, the rhinoplasties that I do are pretty comprehensive. Um, you know, I, when a patient sees me, I look at them and say, you know, what do we have to do to create the best nose for your face, right? And oftentimes that involves some of the bigger things that the patient sees that's very obvious to them. And other times it involves very subtle adjustments so that everything fits together at the end. And often those subtle adjustments patients don't even realize are there. Uh, but you, as you know, I mean, patients will see a lot of things after surgery, right? Because they're looking more critically, you know, it's like going out and buying this new car and and it's like amazing. And you notice any little stone chip on the hood Absolutely. after, right? Whereas if you dr drove a 15-year-old car, right. you know, there could be a dent in the <laughs> right. side of the, the door and you wouldn't notice it, right. right? So that's what cosmetic surgery is for patients. So I like it to be comprehensive. Um, but I think there are a couple of things that probably create a little bit more swelling. Uh, like when we take down the bump or the dorsal hump, oftentimes we have to adjust the bones, so the upper third of the nose. That probably leads to a little bit more swelling and bruising. And I think the other thing from a recovery standpoint is certainly when you one has to do a lot of septal work for a deviated septum, that probably also adds it because I typically will put an internal splints in the nose to keep everything in place after mm -hmm. manipulating the septum. So that sometimes is a bit more congestion, which I think creates a bit more swelling as well. But on average, uh, and there's a, again, a range and of times and varying practices from different surgeons. But for me, typically uh, my patients will have their external and internal splints. So the splint on the outside of the nose and the splint on the inside and the nostrils removed at one week. And they'll typically have the few fine stitches in the columella, you know, the skin where the incisions made, those removed at one week. And then usually somewhere between 10 and 14 days, Patients will still have swelling and their nose will still be puffy, but most of their bruising is gone and essentially are presentable in public um, by two weeks after. Now, one of the great things, you know, in plastic surgery, there's constant improvement in practice, innovation, both not only with what we do in surgery, but a lot of the treatment around surgery. So from medications, uh, for pain control. There's some medications that reduce bleeding and swelling now that we'll give uh, in a lot of facial procedures. And although there's no great scientific studies yet that say, hey, yes, by doing this, it makes the recovery half a week shorter. 
I think certainly anecdotally our observation when we're using some of these medications is there is less bruising, there is less swelling, it seems to resolve a little bit quicker. And when we're talking on the terms of 10 to 14 days, I mean, you know, half a week is, you know, half a week away from life for patients, half a week out of work mm -hmm. or out of school. So I think it does make a big difference. Absolutely. And patients love that. Every little bit you can do to reduce their swelling and downtime is greatly appreciated. So that's wonderful. Um, now, we've talked about how reductive rhinoplasty is much less common now. And so hopefully some of the sequelae of that is reduced as well. But how commonly, even in your practice now, how commonly are you seeing the need for revision surgeries after a primary rhinoplasty, meaning the, the first and hopefully only rhinoplasty, but sometimes there is need for additional revision work. How commonly are you seeing that? Yeah, so I, th I think that's a great question and we have to look at it from several perspectives. So how often do I revise patients who I do the first surgery on? I think that's an important thing that's for patients to understand. Yeah. And then how often do we see patients who more recently had their surgery in the past five or 10 years uh, versus patients who may have had their surgery 25, 30, 40 years ago? Um, because oftentimes I think, you know, when you're looking at someone who had surgery decades ago, the techniques were different. What the standard of care was, was different. What was technically done. And certainly those surgeons didn't know what we know now, right? So, you know, some of those surgeries, the noses were a little bit weak. They change over time. And that was just as best of surgery as was being done at the time. And that has nothing to do with the surgeon. It's just what we knew at the time. Sure. And I'll see patients who had their rhinoplasty at 16, 18, in their early 20s, and they're seeing me at 65, right, decades later. And, you know, they technically, or what I'll find anatomically, what the cartilage looks like under is very classic of what I would have expected for the time. It's hard to know how often revisions were before, but I suspect if one were to look critically at the results, probably a, a lot higher just because we know that when we don't make a nose structurally sound, it's more susceptible to problems, particularly as time goes yeah. on. So in the past, much higher revision rate, you would think. Yeah. Now, when we look at more kind of the past, you know, 10 to 20 years where techniques have evolved so there's not overly aggressive surgery in the nose or at least uh, overly aggressive removal of the structural support in the form of cartilage and bone, I think we start to get into this more recent era where we have the knowledge of what to do and we should be doing the best possible surgery for the patient. Um, and that's a little bit of a different thing because I still do see uh, patients who come in who've had uh, surgeries that probably could have been quite a lot better, you know, uh, technically, you know, certain things weren't done, certain things were way too aggressive. And those, those type of things open the door to the nose changing and potentially, you know, not being what the patient was hoping for. So I think that's one um, group. And again, it's really hard to know how, how common revisions are. Now, when we get to my own practice where I'm operating on someone for the first time, I think that's a, a good barometer for patients to know about if you get high quality surgery, what are your chances that you might need a little bit more? 
Um, so my practice, I do a very thorough open structural rhinoplasty. I think my average complexity of a case is reasonably complex. Mm -hmm. They uh, Patients usually need multiple things. Uh, dorsal hump reduced, a very crooked nose, tip work, and they can't breathe. Uh, my revision rate is somewhere between 5 and 10%, depending on the year. Now, it's really important when we talk about revisions, we're, we have, we're not necessarily comparing apples and oranges because a revision where you need to redo the entire nose because it's completely deformed after the surgery right. is very different than having your first surgery and you're like 95%, 98% of the way there. And there's just a very small thing that the patient looks in the mirror and they'll often say to me, they'll say, you know, I know what I told you before surgery. I know I said, if it's just a little better, I would be happy. And I never thought this tiny thing would bother me, but it does. Mm -hmm. And the way I approach that is, you know, particularly as my practice has gone on, you know, I, I will do revisions or what I would consider touch-ups. Mm -hmm. They're usually under local anesthesia, almost like a little smoothing out of an area. Mm -hmm. I, I do things now that I probably never would have considered in my first few years of practice. I think the more you do and the more you talk to patients, uh, you see more. I think the level of resolution is higher the more one does. And I think the more you talk to patients and particularly listen to patients, you realize that there are situations where patients aren't being unreasonable at all or overly critical. They're almost there. And if you could do something with low risk to the patient, that could get them that 1% extra result in their result to make them completely happy. To them, that's the whole world, mm -hmm. right? And and so that's why my perspective has evolved over mm -hmm. that time. So when I say I have a five to 10% revision rate, the vast majority are the patient has had a, a profound improvement. Absolutely. And there's the smallest yeah. adjustment that needs to be made for them to be fully happy. And it's, you know, you, you've operated on many people it, it's a it's a, a an important part for those patients in their life one of the bigger decisions they make in their life to have surgery cosmetic surgery and uh, so it's important that we try to do our best to get them the result that they're hoping for particularly you know particularly when they're being realistic about yeah, it yeah sometimes it really just comes down to the personality of the patient as well and uh, yeah. their own personal philosophy of what's going to be acceptable and what's not so and it's um yeah. it's difficult it, it takes a lot of finesse um by a person like yourself to really um, negotiate that and manage that well so it sounds like you do a good job with that um one last thing about rhinoplasty before we move on what do you think is the most common misconception about rhinoplasty or nose surgery that patients may have i think there's two things so number one is that many patients are fearful that it's going to look unnatural and overdone. Mm -hmm. And personally, I think that that's more reflective of technically what's done and then the aesthetics of the surgeon. So I think if a surgeon wants to do surgery where it looks natural, natural doesn't mean less changes. One can make a tremendous amount of change in nose and provided the end result fits that patient's mm -hmm. face, it's going to look natural. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I'll hear from patients who have, you know, a very large dorsal hump, very crooked nose, very droopy tip, and they get a, a rhinoplasty where they're straighter, the hump's addressed, it's a more feminine 
appearing nose, but it's proportionate, it's balanced with their facial features. And they'll come in at their, you know, four to six weeks appointment. And they'll be like, so how is it? You know, how are you doing? They're like, it's great. It's exactly like what you said. People have asked me if I've changed my hair. Am I wearing more makeup? Have I lost weight? Did I come back on vacation? And really, to me, that's the measure of a beautiful result. A, a nose that's beautiful that you can tell in the before and after is a, a big improvement. But the nose really isn't the centerpiece. It actually complements the rest of the face. And now the face seems more balanced and the face comes out. And, and I think that's great. And so that's a misconception from patients is that they feel if they get a rhinoplasty, they're going to look overdone unnatural. And the reference point is what they've seen in the media. True. So, you know, you remember the 80s and, and there were a lot of celebrities who had had rhinoplasty that was overdone. It was a sign of the times, but it was overdone. It changed how they look. So patients are fearful of that. The other thing that compounds that is I think we're seeing that Patients from a variety of backgrounds are now having cosmetic surgery, uh, all different ethnicities. And what I see in certain communities is they're even more fearful of having the overdone mm -hmm. nose because it becomes such a stark contrast or it's incongruent with their facial features and it's stigmatizing. But I think the way we approach doing not only rhinoplasty, but cosmetic surgery now is we can make really nice improvements and it makes the best version of that patient. Mm -hmm. So it complements their own beauty. And so I think that's a misconception. The other misconception in rhinoplasty, I think is related to um, not only social media, but just the ease in which we're able to take photos and manipulate them. And so some patients will come in with their inspiration pick right and and when you look at it you know that there were probably 17 versions of the same photo taken uh some airbrushing filters and then it's you know you know six by six centimeters on a yeah. on a mobile phone Not very realistic and yeah. most things will look good that way right sure. uh but what we're dealing with or and the only thing that we can actually predict is what a, what I see in front of me, you know, at arm's length with the patient when I look at them, you know, I'm trying to make a result that's going to look good at conversation distance. And that's very different than what's happening with all the manipulation. And, and unfortunately, with so much manipulation, it can create an unrealistic expectation for the patient because they're looking at, some, at someone uh, whose nose, for all intents and purposes, looks perfect flawless but it's because it's been so manipulated and at the end end of surgery you know once the patient's looking in the mirror you know they roll out of bed in the morning and wash their face and look in the mirror you know it, what you see is what you get right and so i think it's so important for people who are considering cosmetic surgery to get a realistic expectation of what surgery can do on their face or on their body yeah that's great information and it's a great philosophy so Congratulations. Um, well, let's shift a little bit and talk about, just briefly, about treatment of the chin. What are the options for people who want to reshape their chin or want a more prominent chin? Uh, what do you find is most commonly requested in your practice? I think that's a great question, Regina. There's a few things. So the chin, the lower jaw, the mandible, uh, is functional, right? Because mm -hmm. the lower teeth are on it. 
So one of the things we think of in plastic surgery when a patient comes in asking about their chin is we want to make sure they have proper occlusion or how their upper and lower teeth fit together. Uh, although we can make the chin more prominent in the form of injecting fillers or fat or putting a chin implant or sometimes making a cut in the bone and moving it forward, sometimes the cut in the bone has to be done to adjust the, the jaw so the teeth fit properly and there's not excessive wear of the teeth or sometimes uh, jaw pain that the patients whose teeth don't fit properly. So we want to make the right diagnosis and really give the patient all the options. Now, if the teeth aren't an issue, if they fit well, then when we look specifically at trying to create more shape or usually pushing the chin forward a little bit, then it's that variety. Either we can add volume through injection, whether that's filler, so non-surgical procedure, whether that's fat where we take a little fat of fat and inject, or we can put an implant. There's a variety of of synthetic materials that chin implants are made of. And then the other thing that can be done in some instances is to make an incision in the bone and move it forward um, depending on how we're trying to re reshape the chin and, and the front of the jaw. Um, and they all have advantages and disadvantages. One of the things I'm seeing with all of the soft tissue fillers and, and a lot of people are doing them, uh, I do see some patients who get injected and they probably would have done better with an implant because an implant's more structure, structural and stable and that's what a jaw and a chin is. But they have so much filler injected into their their soft tissues of their chin that it almost looks like it's it's soft and that's not what a good jawline looks like, right? right? A jaw gets its shape and its shadow and its light from something that's solid. So for a small amount of chin augmentation or moving it forward um, one two millimeters putting filler or fat is a good thing but once it needs to be more than that i think putting something more structurally stable in the form of a chin implant usually gives a better aesthetic mm -hmm. that makes perfect sense and i think that's a good approach are you finding that you sometimes will revise the neck contour, the neck angle to improve the chin appearance. How often do you do that uh, together with your chin work? Yeah, so, you know, I think that that's a, a, an important relationship that sometimes patients or surgeons don't see. Uh, particularly the patient that's getting older, that's coming in for the neck lift, oftentimes they're losing that some volume from the chin and the jaw. And to really enhance the angle from the jaw to the neck, it's not only about tightening uh, the, the supporting structures just underneath the skin layer in the neck, but it's also about restoring some of that fullness or prominence to the chin, and both of those things act to get the, the neck more defined. And I think that's an important thing to consider. Now, most of the patients that come in to see me for just a chin implant, I tend to see patients that are younger that are coming in for just a chin implant or a chin implant with a rhinoplasty, whereas the patients uh, with neck lifting, those are the ones that we, we want to really evaluate if pushing the chin forward is going to actually enhance the result. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, let me ask you, if you had your far-seeing vision, what do you think the future holds for rejuvenation of these facial areas that we've been talking about that affect the profile? Do you think there's anything new coming down the pike that you'd like to see, or maybe we don't even have the technology for yet? I think that's a great 
question, Regina. There's always innovation, and and oftentimes it, it almost comes comes at us out of the blue in a way. So I think people in the industry will know about it, but it hits the public out of the blue. Um, so there are a couple of things. So with uh, the soft tissue filler, so hyaluronic acids are great and. They last a considerable amount of time, but we're seeing other types of tissue fillers where they're, you can inject them and they promote the growth of some of the fat so that it will increase the volume in the area. And that can be a longer term change. So that's, I think, a desirable thing. Um, in addition to that, what we're seeing relative to rhinoplasty, so there are some uh, tissue banks that can harvest cartilage from donors. So donors who will donate, you know, their kidney or their liver mm -hmm. organs, they can all also donate some cartilage from the rib. And that is cleansed, processed and frozen. And then we can actually use that as a source for cartilage when we're doing rhinoplasty. And that's a great thing because it performs very well. Um, the body integrates it. And, you know, for the patient who may have had one or two or three surgeries and they don't have enough cartilage in their nose, but they need that uh, cartilage framework restored, you know, taking a, a, a rib out of someone, we can do it. But if I had my preference to not have that personally, I wouldn't have it done. Yeah, absolutely. So this is really a, a great thing. And, you know, unfortunately, some patients have multiple surgery and they may have had a segment of rib mm -hmm. removed already. already. So for those patients, then this gives a good option as well that there's an alternate source to get uh, donor cartilage to use. And I think the other thing that will come up is an injectable for the nose that is very long lasting. Mm -hmm. um, maybe even, I hate, I wanna be always very specific, but maybe even permanent, right? Yeah. So one could almost, almost think like if you had a material that was from cartilage but very fine if you inject it it would integrate into the framework um, and wouldn't completely absorb so that it would last a very long time so i think we're seeing um i, I bet that's on the horizon be particularly great for those patients who have had some injections before like the look but it's just not lasting and so uh, rather than jumping right to something permanent you've got that tried and true test of hey this is the look I want and I would like something more permanent so that would be wonderful and one of the other areas to uh, Regina beyond uh, injectables is also energy-based treatments um, so when we're looking at skin tightening and tissue tightening if we apply energy at a certain temperature it'll stimulate uh, wound healing uh, within the tissues collagen production mm -hmm. and then tightening of the tissues and that's both the skin and also some of the underlying tissues so we're also seeing that too and the hope is that we get more accurate with those treatments so that we can predict whose necks are going to have the best benefit from that uh, it may be the type of thing where there's a little bit of looseness and you can have a treatment like that which will have less downtime uh, smaller incision 
um, and may temporize the result or give the patient the result they want for five or ten years longer mm -hmm. prior to considering a surgical facelift. Yeah. So I think we're seeing a lot of technologies that are great that are coming out. And the nice thing about them too is we're getting more precise in the delivery of the energy so that it's predictable that we're putting enough energy to create that healing response, but not too much energy to damage the skin and potentially create burns or scars. Yeah, it's a really exciting time actually with all the new technologies that are being developed. It's it's pretty amazing. So well, thank you so much, Dr. Jamil Ahmad. You have just been a great guest. You're very well-spoken, and you gave our listeners a lot of wonderful, well-thought-out information. So thank you for being here. Great. Thanks so much, Regina, for having me. Take care. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something, too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.